We are now going to move on to the Q and A time. You guys can be nice to Brad. Um, you guys, well, you guys were rough with Daniel. So I was, I was listen, I listened to the tapes, and so just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. If, can you set up a mic for me so I can jump in in case things get too surly here? Um, anyway, Brad, please welcome Brad Oust. I've got. How long have you been serving at uh, Grace? Two years. And normally, it's, we've gotten out of pattern here, but normally uh, Daniel and I and, and Mark and Brad go out and do lunch once a month and catch up and encourage each other. So it's been a great joy getting to know Brad over the last two years. Um, I'm going to suggest that Brad start by going through the blanks on the sheet. <laughs> so take it away, Brad. All right. You want me to go through every blank or just? I'd okay. go through everyone, yes. All right, we can do that. All right. This is the first time I've ha- I've had this format where where there's lots of blanks to fill in for a sermon. So that's new to me. So I apologize for maybe not touching on them all. But okay, here we go. Theme of Titus: Teach sound doctrine that accords with godliness. Hopefully, you got that one at least. Okay. Um, so first bullet there: Paul is an apostle for the sake of the fake faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So knowledge, truth, godliness. Elders must have sound doctrine and live lives that reflect it. Sound doctrine and reflect. Uh, Third bullet there, false teachers do not have sound doctrine, nor do they live godly lives. Uh, fourth bullet, Titus is to, am I going too fast or is this okay? All right, Titus is to teach people godly living that accords with sound doctrine. Number five, Titus is to declare these things. Uh, the sixth bullet, Titus is to remind people to live godly lives. Um, Next one, Titus insists on these things that make up sound doctrine so that believers will devote themselves to good works. And then the last bullet there, Paul calls the Christians in Crete to devote themselves to good works. So that phrase shows up twice at the end of the book. Application, sound doctrine and godliness go hand in hand. Pastors and elders must teach and model sound doctrine. And then doctrine matters for every moment of our lives. Anybody miss anything on the front page? Okay. Flip it over. Uh, Sub-themes. The gospel grounds godliness. Uh, We don't live godly lives to earn God's grace. We live godly lives because God's grace has already come to us, bringing salvation. Next bullet, God's grace trains us to live godly lives. Christ saved us not because of works, but according to his mercy. And then the next one, godliness glorifies God. And godly lives put the gospel and its power on display for all to see. Okay? So 
gospel and its power on display for all to see. Would you like me to read through those four questions again? Would that be helpful? Anyone want that? Yes? Okay. First question, what am I doing or experiencing right now? What am I doing or experiencing right now? Second, in light of what I'm doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself? In light of what I'm doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself? Third question, what do I believe God is doing or has done? What do I believe God is doing or has done? And then last question, what do I believe God is like? What am I believing God is like? And in case you're interested, the book that comes from is called Gospel Fluency. Gospel Fluency, and it's written by Jeff Vanderstelt. Jeff Vanderstelt, V-A-N-D-E-R-S-T-E-L-T. Brad, if I could interject, my wife has an, a fifth question she likes to ask when there's traffic that I'm responding to, and she says, do you think they know who you are? <laughs> <laughs> no, we were just driving the other day, and I was going, what is this person doing? I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't think I'm like angry, I'm just vexed, I'm just going, what are they, don't worry, dear, I'm certain they wouldn't be doing that if they knew who you were. <laughs> I find that most helpful. Yeah. And hopefully humbling. All right, questions on the book of Titus? Yes. Oh, we got to wait for the microphone. All right. Okay, so I was thinking about this when you were sharing about the different roles of yes. each person. And it's talking about a role for young women, and it's mostly speaking to they should be caring for their children and their Mm -hmm. husbands. What about the young women who don't have children or husbands yet? Yeah, Paul doesn't really address that in Titus. um, I think that the... Yeah, because when you look at that, um, that's a good question. Um, A lot of what his instructions for these young women are has to do with the home, right? And understandably so, uh, if you are a mother and you have young children, your life in many ways centers on the home. Uh, there are some other character instructions there, though, to be self-controlled, pure, um, kind, would, would certainly apply to all younger women. But um, I, I, don't, I, don't think this, I don't think these lists here are exhaustive lists of here's what I want, here's an exhaustive list of what I want young women to be like. I think it's just some general instructions. Um, so I think even if you don't have children, there's still some application there. This is the type of person I'm to be. And even working towards, you know, if someday I would get married and have children, then here's some further instructions. And I can even be preparing, you know, as a single woman, preparing for that someday. Does that answer what you're looking for? Okay. Yes. One of the things I found helpful, Al Mohler points out that the Bible usually assumes the default position for an adult is married. 
That, that's generally the assumption. We certainly know that marriage ages were much younger than they are now. And before, before um, effective and cheap birth control, marriages produced kids. So it's, it's just sort of the, assu- the assumption is most people are going to be, this is what you're, he's, he's uh, speaking to the most common scenario. But it's absolutely not exhaustive. But that is sort of the assumption. Our, presently, I think the first marriage for a white female is like 28. Knock that back a decade. You're probably closer to where they were in Paul's day for the average first marriage or even younger. And so it's just, that's, that's sort of the assumed situation. It's not excluding that. It's just that's where most younger women and younger men are going to be. And I think culturally, too, the, the women were in a little bit different situation then, as I understand it, than women today in America, where you, you, know, you can be a single woman and work in the business world with a lot of freedom. And I don't think it was quite that open and free back in that day. I can't just point and call on you because you've got to wait for the microphone. Most people, I think, believe that the husband and, husband and one wife is the controversial part of Titus. But I'm thinking, I'll, I'll pass on that and wonder what do you think it means to have children who are faithful or mm-hmm. believers? Yeah. Do you think specifically that elders have to have children? Yep. Do they, do they, children have to be old enough to have demonstrated that I am faithful as an elder to raise them to be? Sure. That's, that's a good question. It's one I anticipated. <laughs> I was just reading this morning, just catching up on it again, because I hadn't preached through that for a while. Um, personally, I don't think an elder has to have children, I don't think that's what Paul's after. I think it was the normal situation, um, just as a, a, a woman to be married was relatively normal. Um, is it a requirement? Um, I, I don't personally view it that way. I, I think um, it, it's important to see how a prospective elder interacts with others, how he shepherds others, and the supreme the supreme way to see that is if he has children and a wife to see how he shepherds them. He's living with them all the time. It, he, as a father and a husband, he has a responsibility to shepherd his wife and children, a biblical responsibility. And so um, they see all of his life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, so if you look at a, an eld, a prospective elder and he has a wife and children and he's shepherding them well by what we can tell as a church, that's a good indication that he's probably going to shepherd God's people well. Now, what do you do if an elder doesn't have a wife or children? Um, I think you look for other relationships. How is he shepherding other people? Is he intentional to do that? Is he discipling people um, out, you know, outside of his everyday work life or whatever it might be? What do his interactions with others look like? And is it giving an indication to us as a church that he's going to do that with this body? I, I think that's the general sense that, that seems to fit what, what that would look like. Uh, if, if having children was a requirement, then Paul could not have been an elder, nor Jesus, right? So I, I, think, it's, I think it's pushing it too far to say that an elder is required to have children um, for those reasons, so... Okay, two things. First of all, and I would like comments from you and Jeremy if this is inappropriate, but um, 
I've known people that couldn't have children for some reason, and it seems like God gives them a hunger to influence many children. And those who, anyway, uh, Sarah's a teacher. So does that apply that she is actually shepherding children on a daily basis? Sarah. Oh. Okay. Does that imply she, well, she certainly could be. Yes, that's a, um, I mean, to, to the degree that, public school? Christian school. Okay, so absolutely. I mean, doors wide open for you. I hope that you are shepherding those children and pouring into them and discipling them, um, doing more than teaching them English or math or whatever, that, that there's a, a biblical worldview behind everything you're doing. Absolutely. I mean, discipleships, discipleship, <laughs> discipling others is not limited to parents to children. That's a, that's a natural place for it and the bible calls parents to do that but that's not it's not limited to that i mean yes absolutely there are many opportunities in life with friends or whoever it might be that yes I mean, we should all be doing that okay thank you and the second thing is was your basement flooded no <laughs> <laughs> no um yeah it was a lot of rain and and by god's grace we got there and there i mean it was water had just barely started to trickle in oh. and Yay. So, yes, <laughs> I forgot to mention that. <laughs> Thank you for your concern. Well, this isn't about your sermon, okay. but um, we have been, as a church, we have prayed for you, and I just wondered if you would kind of give a, um, a rundown of what... Oh, you did? Okay, I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, Greg said that you did that before I got in here. So. Yeah, I, the, I'll just, in case there was anyone else that missed it, I'll just share real quickly. Um, I just had a, so I had hairy cell leukemia and Legionnaire's disease. I was in the hospital for four weeks, and thank you all for your prayers. I can't tell you what a blessing that was to hear from, I forget if it was Jeremy or Daniel said your whole church was praying for me. It meant a lot to me. Um, just had an oncology visit last Thursday, and um, for the first time since I have been in the hospital, my blood levels are in the normal range, so I'm praising God for that. Uh, just definition, doctrine of godliness keep coming up. Can you make them more concrete? What do, they re- what do you mean by them? And what yeah, so, mean by so them? sound doctrine, what I mean by that is what the Bible teaches about God and about the world he's created, what it teaches about us as people, um, so that, it's, it's a big, broad category. I'm thinking systematic theology, biblical theology, the things that God has revealed, the truths that God has revealed to us. And of course, that's, it should all center on the gospel. Um, so that, that's how I would summarize sound doctrine, what I mean by that. that. That which is orthodox, which the church has believed for centuries, which the Bible reveals and, and speaks to. Um, godliness would be a way of living that reflects God's character. So reflecting his holiness, his love, his beauty, his majesty to this world. Obviously, none of us are omnipotent or omniscient or, you know, we don't have God's qualities to the same degree that he does. But um, as he transforms us to live in a way to, to love him and love our neighbors, we love ourselves. It's, it's reflecting his, his character to the world through the way that we live. Is that helpful? I appreciate the desire for defining words. It's, if I learned anything in seminary, it's define the terms because so many times people talk just past one another because this person says the phrase and they mean this and this person thinks they mean this over here by that phrase. So 
appreciate that. Yeah, Jeremy. It's been five years since I taught through Titus, so correct me if I'm wrong. Does the word that's translated sound, doesn't that also mean healthy? Yes, it does. That's, yep. that's another, I think, sometimes helpful way of looking at it. Healthy doctrine or doctrine that produces healthy life-giving things. A healthy seed is going to bear good fruit. A bad seed is going to bad, bear bad fruit. And I, that's, I think, a lot of the assumptions about mm-hmm. the way life bears out from what we believe. So healthy doctrine, um, life-filled, life-giving doctrine might be other ways to try to round, get around what he means by sound doctrine. Yep. And just, just another application, I just thought of this now. Um, when we study theology, when we read our Bibles, um, it's important for us to think rightly about God and the truths that he reveals to us in Scripture. I think it's also helpful to, to push those truths into the everyday life. How, how does it, why does it matter that God is omniscient? What if he weren't omniscient? Think how terrible that would be if he had all the other qualities except, or, except for omniscience. It would be a terrible God. Um, so, you know, what does it mean that we're fallen, sinful humans? Let's just understand that and then think, what does that mean for me? How does that affect my life? How does that affect the way I view others and view life? How does that call us then to be urgent in, in presenting the gospel to people? The fact that they're fallen, sinful human beings, they're, they're, that should create in us an urgency and so I, I just think it's important that we, we not only just learn doctrine, that those are absolutely essential, but that we also push it and press it where the rubber meets the road into everyday life. When you're talking about godliness, the fruit of the Spirit is what my mind went mm-hmm. to. And is there a parallel there? Oh, I know for myself that's something I ponder as a kind of a self-assessment, grading yeah. myself. How, how am I doing with the fruit of the Spirit? Absolutely. I mean, the, the fruit of the Spirit is, for Christians, the Spirit is living in us, and the fruit of the Spirit is what it looks like when the Spirit living in us plays out in our everyday lives. Absolutely. I would say the fruit of the Spirit, that list would be a, a prime example of, of what godly living looks like. I've always been curious about uh, verses 12 and 13, uh, uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, etc. And Paul, quite surprisingly, said, yep, that's right. Uh, Is that really what he meant to say? Is is he saying, yes, somebody said this? Or is he uh, saying, yes, this is true of Cretans? Yeah. This is a, it's a fascinating question and a fascinating study. Here, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Who said that statement? A prophet. A, a Cretan said that. Yes. Cretans are all liars. Do you see the paradox there? Okay. Here's what I think Paul's doing. He's saying he's acknowledging the truth. There's a generalization going on, right? The, the prophet who said this is generalizing that this is generally true of Cretans. This is the general character of the people who live on this island. This is what they're like. This is the culture, okay? I think what Paul is doing is saying, your own prophet has said this, so case A, I'm you know, making a case against these false teachers. Here, um, evidence number one, your own prophet has said this about you, 
And what they said about your people in general is specifically true of these false teachers. So I don't think Paul is saying that every Cretan without exception is a liar and a lazy glutton and an evil beast. I think what he's saying is that's a gener- he's agreeing that that's generally true of Cretans and it's especially true of these false teachers here in this section. Uh, can that same term be used for politicians? <laughs> you know, depending on, on your spirit and motive and um, whatnot, Following in the footsteps of Paul, I think there might be a place for applying that to politicians saying, look, politicians tend to be this way, and that's specifically true of this particular one. I think there might be a place for that, but again, I would caution us, look at our own hearts, be careful. We're trusting that Paul wrote this in love, and um, you know, he wasn't being especially mean or antagonistic or whatnot. Um, I, I know my own heart that... There might be a tendency to be that way. So, yes. I, I got to jump in for one second. Go ahead. Um, well, we live in a day and age where any sort of group generalizations are viewed upon as negative. And certainly, they, as you're saying, they can be. They can be done in uncharitable, uh, condescending, self-righteous ways. Yet clearly, we all know you can't deal with every single person as an individual. You, you do that. And this is an example where there can be righteously given or helpful generalities that are true generally. This is, this is you know, one example. Whenever I talk to Christians who are saying we should always, like, okay, are Cre- is this true about Cretans? And, and so it's, our current culture hates whenever, you can give generalities when they're positive. You can say this people group is very hospitable and they honor their parents and no one has a problem with that. But if you make it, so we need to be very careful that if we do that, we do it righteously, we do it rightly, because these are the types of sins that our culture particularly despises. And so in our day and age, just because Paul gives us this example doesn't give us free reign to just go out and make every single stereotype and example we want, even as we know there can be a place for loosely held generalizations that are useful. Um, anyway, just sorry. I, I would add to that... Um Notice that Paul is not making this generalization. He's just quoting someone else who made the generalization. I think there's a difference there. Um, and he's, again, specifically applying it to, to one group of people. I don't think this, this example here opens up the door for us to be making generalizations like that all, all the time. I don't think that's helpful. Just uh, looking through that same section there in verse 10 and 11, I think that's one that's easy to skip over for us a lot of times because obviously he's talking uh, to the church and how things go on in the church. Um, you know, we have a hard time believing to this level of, uh, um, I guess, uh, egregious activity that they would actually be doing and teaching things for sordid gain or for, for uh, their own purposes because we don't, at least in Little Martinsdale here, you know, if something like that happened, you know, that would be hopefully shut down instantly. But as you look at, especially the church in America in a broad sense, well, good grief, it's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, it's rampant. And uh, so that, that's something that is, 
you know, it, it was happening then, and it's, it's happening now. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think the place my mind first goes is to the prosperity gospel, quote-unquote gospel there. Um, that's an easy target. You know, but I, I think it's helpful for us to read this and go, okay, what's my motive for teaching? Maybe it's not financial gain, but maybe I'm looking for praise from others. Maybe I'm looking for a pat on the back. Maybe I'm looking for uh, things like that. I think, I think it's helpful just to apply that to ourselves too and go, okay, God, purify my motives. Um, this isn't about me. I, I want, I, I remember, I think it was in college, one of my professors said to me, I've never forgotten it, said, when you leave a room, you know, speaking to us, as t- I was training for ministry, when you leave a room, do you want people to have a bigger view of you or a bigger picture, of, a bigger view of God? And I thought, that, that's always challenged me. Like, it's not about me. I want people to see God as great, not to see Brad as great, because Brad isn't that great. And um, so I, I just think motive and teaching is really important. Content is critical as well, but um, I, I think we need both there. So, and, and I do think there are places where there is... Oh, um, let me just share a few examples from... So before I went to seminary, I was a youth pastor, youth director for like 12 years. So my world largely is youth ministry, children's ministry. And one of the things that, that I was challenged on a few years ago was to, have, to be God-centered in my approach to children's ministry. I share this as an example of what I would classify as false teaching or certainly not quite right teaching. Um, I was challenged to be God-centered in my approach to children's and youth ministry. And here, here's an example. Um, in children's ministry, we tend to use a lot of stories, and rightly so. Kids relate to stories. We adults relate to stories, right? Um, and the Bible's full of them. The Bible is a grand story. It's a grand narrative for us. Um, there's a tendency, though, in our desire to, be, uh, to apply the Bible to our lives to be more man-centered in our approach, so let me give you an example. Um, story of, oh, let me, pick, let me pick several. Story of the disciples in the boat when the storm comes up. Jesus is, in, is sleeping, right? How do we often tell that story, whether it's to children or adults? Oftentimes in the church, we tell the story in a way where we say, okay, um, you know, the storm came on, the disciples were scared for their lives. These are fishermen who know the seas. They're scared that they're going to drown. They wake Jesus, and he calms the storm. And we tend to apply that to our lives by going, okay, what's the storm going on in your life? How can God be with you in the midst of that storm? I would submit that that's more of a man-centered approach than what the Bible actually intends for that particular story. Here's what I mean. What was the disciples' reaction to what Jesus did? Anybody remember what they said? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Their jaws were dropped. Who is this? They were still figuring out who this Jesus was. They were still figuring out. In their minds, they did not have a concept for Messiah, ruler over nature. And Jesus was showing his sovereignty over nature. Jesus, God, the one who speaks and it comes into being. He speaks, and the winds stop, and the water is stilled. And so I would submit that a God-centered approach to a story like that is to get the emphasis 
not on us, but on God. Does that mean it's wrong for us to, there's a place for application of, yeah, we all go through trials in life and we need to rely on God. But I would submit that if we have a big picture of God and with our people, help them to have a big picture of God, when those storms come, they're naturally gonna go to God and say, God, help me, just like the disciples did. Um, so I think the app, that, that personal application will come when we see a bigger picture of God. Let me give another example. David and Goliath. You all know the story. Emphasis, the application is often on um, who are the giants in your life? Let's, you know, boldly for God, go fight them. Or Joshua and Jericho, same thing. Think about the songs we teach our children. Only a boy named David, only a little sling. Go on and on and on. I'm not going to sing the whole song for you this morning. There's someone conspicuously absent from that song. There's not a single reference to God. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. You can talk about your men of Gideon. You can talk about, I forget who the other one, but there's no one like our man named Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. Again, God is totally missing from that. And I think as churches in America, especially, we need to get the emphasis on God and help our children and our people have a big picture of God. That, that's what I mean by man-centered versus God-centered. Does that make sense? I, I, is it false doctrine? Eh. There's a place for those applications. Yes, we need to know that God loves us. We need to know um, that God is strong. We need, we need to know, yes, there's a place for, for Old Testament story, people being examples to us. Paul says that in, is it 1 Corinthians? These serve as examples for us, but they were negative examples. It wasn't follow their example. It was don't be like them. They hardened their hearts against God. So there's a place for people, characters, and stories being examples for us. I just think as a church, we need to emphasize God. That's that's much more sound doctrine. Um, so just, just another example, I think, with, within the church of what that could look like. Sorry, I just rambled on a soapbox. More questions? Okay. <laughs> Somebody said we're used to it. <laughs> hey, now. Simmer down now. Actually, can I push your soapbox a little bit further? Yeah. No, but this is this is the problem. The the stories of the Bible and even the people of faith are meant are meant to be seen as frail, broken, faulty people. They've got this great God, and we moralize the stories as if the point of the story is be like Joseph, be a good little boy like David. Be, that's not the point of the stories. And you see that most evidently when you see these movies that are made of the stories because they try to get rid of every character defect. Probably the single most embarrassing example I've ever seen was the one about Esther. Because they're trying to take this woman who willingly volunteers to join a harem and make her into a virtuous person. Now, she's got moments of faith. There are spots you can certainly identify and say, wow, that was good on her part. But you're going to, this is why they have such a problem going through the book of Judges. Because every one of these judges is broken and flawed. And if you understand the point is they've got this great faithful God. So even in their brokenness, their moments of faith God honors, you can tell those stories. But if you make it about us, then you've got to do a lot of reshaping to turn these people into virtuous you know, paragons of virtue, which is not the point at all. Th- thank you for getting on. And the long-term effect of over and over and over and over teaching that is you get this impression of moralism 
that God helps those who help themselves, that if you're a good little boy like David, if you can trust God like Joshua, then the walls of the problems of your life will come down. And then when they don't, and you get sickle, hairy cell leukemia, it becomes a real big problem theologically. And that, that type of thing can build up over years. You never explicitly said it, but by constantly emphasizing the moralistic aspect of the and there certainly is a moralistic aspect you can say mm-hmm. don't do what they did look what happened to them the ground swallowed them but if you keep emphasizing that and don't emphasize the great god you're really setting people up for a man-centered view of a god who exists only to serve us and then when god doesn't serve me what i think i deserve or need i got big theological problems taking place so uh, amen and amen preach it brother Got a question in the back there. Uh, we talked about uh, chapter one and uh, Paul quoting a prophet of the Cretans. Mm-hmm. What does he mean in chapter three when he says to speak evil of no one? Mm-hmm. And uh, how does that fit? Yeah, why 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 is he not doing that in chapter yeah. one? There, there, that's a great question. Um, my initial thought is that there, there must be a way in which Paul was speaking the truth of these Cretans, of these false teachers, in such a way that it was not evil for him to speak that way. Um, and, and I think um, it's, it's really difficult. I think there's a place, you know, or rebuke someone. How do you rebuke someone without speaking evil of them? I think there's a there's a place for speaking truth and there is a way to do it in love and that can be tricky and part of the challenge is sometimes I think even when we speak the truth in love it doesn't feel loving to the person who hears the words. The reality is our culture defines love differently than how the Bible does. Our our culture defines love as um, what makes me feel good, what, um, there, there can be nothing negative in it whatsoever. So the concept of um, he who spares the rod hates his son is foreign to our culture, right? And so I think it's critical for us to de- define the word love and what that means, what that looks like. The reality is sometimes the most loving thing to do is to speak some hard words to someone. I'm thankful for the oncologist who came in and said, you have leukemia. Imagine if she hadn't done that. What if she just came in and said, well, you're sick, we're going to, you know, whatever. It, no, there, there's a place for speaking the truth and, and doing it in a way that's tender and charitable, um, caring. And the hard part is it's not always going to be received as loving. Um, I, I, I think that's why, you know, the, the Bible says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There will be times when when, we're gonna, when we have to speak words that are hard for someone to hear and do it as lovingly as we are able to and it might not always be received that way. So um, to speak evil of no one, that, that's a challenge um, because what, I think there are times in life when it's appropriate to rebuke people given, you know, depending on the relationship. It takes wisdom to know that. Um, that doesn't mean we go out and just point out everyone's flaws to them. That's not loving. Um, but there's a way to do it in a way that calls them to repentance and, and is done charitably and in a spirit of really caring for the other person. 
And, and Paul's wording isn't don't talk about somebody's evil. It's don't speak of them. Don't evilly speak against them. Yeah. Like, like I, an evil motive in an evil manner. Right. Yeah. He's not saying you can't say evil, the mm-hmm. evil things that they're done, don't talk about it. It's don't speak of them mm-hmm. as evil. Right. In an evil way. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, I just looked it up. It's blasphemeo. Yep. And it's primarily he's talking about to speak in a disrespectful way that demeans, yep. denigrates, and maligns. Yep. So you could sharply rebuke somebody without doing that. Right. You could correct and call someone to repentance without doing that. Um, this has a lot more to do with the sneering, condescending, yep. mocking, ridiculing, demeaning that we are to do to no one rather than to say something true. That, that man's guilty. That man committed the crime or that person... You know, whatever. Good, that's helpful. And, and they would even say it about themselves, like, "Yeah, we're we're following this." And so, um, something that helps me sometimes in thinking through talking about some of these things is: Would this person affirm this about themselves? Mm-hmm. Would they have trouble with the way that I'm saying this? And if so, then I need to reevaluate how I'm saying it. But if they're um, saying it about themselves, like, "Yeah, I, I do these things." Like, I don't feel like that's necessarily speaking evil. Yep. Sometimes the problem is people don't see their sin, though. Or they're blind to their own sin. And so they're not always going to agree with our assessment. And our assessments are not always 100% accurate either. So we, we need to approach people with humility when we, when we speak hard words to them. I was wondering if you could speak on, like, how one would approach someone who is non-Christian. Like, if you, you know, oftentimes... Non Christians will have different, more loose views on mm-hmm. what is right and what is wrong, yeah. or like different views on what is right and what is wrong. And is there, do you have a recommendation, I suppose, as to how to speak to that? Because when someone is non Christian, mm-hmm. trying to rebuke them in a Christian way just doesn't work because they yeah. don't believe the same things that you do. And it, I know it says that in the Bible as well, but I was just wondering if you had something to say on that. Yeah, I, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, we should not be surprised when non-Christians sin. It's in their nature. So it shouldn't surprise us. We should be surprised when they actually do right. <laughs> um, that should surprise us. That, that's, I mean, that's just an act of common grace to, to humankind. But, um, so it shouldn't, it shouldn't shock us or surprise us. I think um, one of the things I would say is um, the behavior is just the fruit and it's best to speak to the root. So use the behavior to get to the root if you can. The root being that they're fallen sinful human beings in need of a savior, right? And so it, where there is sin, um, it, you know, let's say someone's doing whatever. Yes, it, we desire for them to stop doing w- whatever it is. But even more so, we should long for them to come to salvation in Christ. And so um, there can be a tendency at times to make this the issue, and let's not make that the issue. This is a, a symptom of a deeper issue, a, a cancer that lies beneath. And so let's address that and use this to get to that and try to, try to speak into that. Um, I had one more thought. I'm trying to think what it was now. Um, I, I, I'll say, okay, here's my, here's my other thought. Is, um, I think all people are pursuing happiness. C.S. Lewis said that, right? 
I don't remember the exact quote, but I trust many of you are familiar with it. We're all pursuing happiness. And so one of the ways to address whatever this is is to help them see that there's greater happiness in pursuing God and finding satisfaction in Him. That this thing is not going to satisfy you. Whatever, whatever you think it is, it may bring some temp- temporary happiness, some temporary satisfaction, but it's not going to fulfill you in the long term because God has not designed us to be fulfilled by the things of this world. It's not the world He created. He designed us to find satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. And so I think that's a, mo- a more positive way to approach this and say I can understand why that brings you some happiness, but point out the fact that there are moments when it doesn't or it never fully satisfies. I illustrate this. I share the example of why, okay, when an when a NFL team wins the Super Bowl, why do those players not retire? They've accomplished their goal. Why do they come back and play again the next year? Because the Lombardi Trophy didn't satisfy them. Yeah, it brought some temporary happiness, but it didn't fully satisfy them. And so if we can get them to, to realize that only God is the one who can satisfy you. That's maybe a, a approach to take that I would encourage. In responding to Naomi, I would also say, and I think it behooves us all to try to do this, is to focus our words on what God says. Uh, if you focus your words on, well, I think, then you, what you think is no better or worse than what that other person thinks. And that just supports or elevates their thinking as valuable. Yeah. What we think is immaterial. What God says is what's important. Yeah. And, uh, and so to the extent that you, even if they say, well, I don't believe in the Bible, I, just, I, I personally think you still come back with, well, God says this, mm-hmm. God says that. Uh, because that's, that's really all that has any authority uh, is, is that. Uh, we may think, well, we've, I've incorporated that into how I think. But if you say it that way, then it becomes just an opinion, right. just like their opinion, mm-hmm. and no better. And, and that is not, not very useful. Yeah, and it, so I'll add to that a scripture that applies to my last point of finding satisfaction in God. Here's one to memorize, Psalm 1611. You've made known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, I mean, that would be a great scripture to point to. Like, you're looking for joy and happiness in these things. They're never going to satisfy. Only God can. Let me show you where he says that to us in the Bible. He created us. Here's what he says about us. We were made for joy and happiness, but it's found in him, not in the things of this world. And the, the pleasures of this world were meant to point to the one who gave those gifts, good gifts to us. They were meant to cause us to praise and enjoy him even more. Our time is at an end. I just wanted to... Uh thank Pastor Brad for for filling in this week. Um, Thank you, brother. It's been a pleasure. And uh, let's just close in order of prayer and pray for Brad's continued health and faithfulness in ministry at Grace in Indianola. Lord, we're just so thankful for uh, Brad's ministry here with us this morning, for his faithfulness to your word. And we pray that we would not be those who see ourselves in the mirror and will turn away and forget, but be our faithful doers, that we would bear fruit that accords with sound doctrine, that there be godliness in our lives. We pray that whatever category we're in, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, that you would help us to be faithful as we ought to be. 
Uh, I pray that you would um, bless uh, Brad for his time and his study here, that you would uh, continue to strengthen and heal uh, his body, and that you would bear much fruit and give much increase in his ministry um, and grace in in you know, Lord, as we go, go our separate ways, I pray that you would cause us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.